Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Today, we're joined by my friend, Ardian. Ardian is the CEO and co-founder of Arc.Page. Arc is a platform that allows you to pay your friends in Bitcoin to curate your internet reading experience. Before co-founding Arc, Ardian was a project manager at Google, working on an experimental Internet of Things platform. Um, he also recently moved to Texas from the Bay Area, and he's originally from Albania. I've had many deep conversations with Ardian about economics, technology, geopolitics, morality, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and we're going to get into many of these things in this episode. So I just wanted to start by framing the discussion around a movie that Ardian recommended that I watch. Uh, the movie's called Brazil. It depicts a future drenched in bureaucracy where everyday life has become dominated by navigating Band-Aid style technology implementations, one on top of another, ultimately creating a sort of disordered and less than sophisticated Orwellian dystopia that in reality barely functions. So back in the real world, um, as the geopolitical situation continues to deteriorate globally and technology and legacy institutions continue to let us down in surprising or maybe not so surprising ways, let's bring in Artie within this context. And maybe he could bring us to a brighter place <laughs> than this eventually. Um, but I think given his technology background, um, a good place to start would be, um, how do you view progress as a concept, Ardian? Yeah, uh, AJ, thanks for the invite. Um, I really enjoyed uh, listening to you guys well on a, on a lot of topics that I've, uh, I've had an interest in for a while. So um, really cool to be here. So um, progress, um, I guess, to sort of start quickly. Uh, the basic idea is that uh, it's uh, very hard to say that there hasn't been any uh, technological progress. That is, that is one of those truths that I would, uh, I would say is self-evident. Uh, however, uh, on the other hand of the medal, uh, we have this idea of um, uh, moral progress. And that's where uh, I think we, uh, we are not doing as well as we, as we think we are. So uh, th this is the main uh, sort of change in lens that I would, uh, I would highlight. Uh, the fact that um, we are not really as, as advanced, we are not really as different as we like to think from, uh, uh, from some of the more uh, brutal uh, cultures that, uh, that enrich in our history books. Um, and and, and that, that is quite, uh, I think it's quite a troubling and, and hard idea for many people to grasp and, and, and swallow, right? Um, I, I think after World War II, um, we, uh, a lot of our elite thinkers had to, uh, had to think of ways to make the, the, new, uh, the new technological uh, landscape that surrounded us, uh, make it palatable. And one of the ways they figured out how to do it was through through this idea of that they call high modernism, right? The uh, the, the basic aesthetic push was um, uh, the idea that we could uh, improve humanity uh, through science, through reason, and uh, scientists and the, the industrial system would be able to uh, to make life better, uh, be able to create uh, environments that were desirable, uh, rich, fruitful, and we would achieve human flourishing that way. And uh, th this was basically the 50s, right? This was the, the nuclear age. And uh, I, 
I remember when I first learned about nuclear weapons as a child, and yeah, they were quite a uh, quite a, a, a scary concept. But at the same time, as um, as I learn more about technology, I think about nuclear weapons, and I, and I try to think of them in, in simplistic terms uh, um, through the picture of. Um, 2001 Space Odyssey of that, um, the primordial man, you know, remember that picture of, uh, uh, so hominid uh, like humans uh, living in a desert landscape. And you had that um, uh, one of these hominids uh, use uh, a club made up made of bone. Um, um, yeah, I think it was made out of a bone and he was hitting other bones with it. And in a way, nuclear weapons haven't haven't really brought us to a different paradigm. They are very much just a unidimensional increase in energy uh, for a particular point that we want to attack. So if you think uh, if you think of it as a spectrum, you had those omids that were trying to hit something with with energy, uh, and then you uh, you bring us forward for two hundred uh, whatever two hundred thousand years uh, or so, and now we can we can do basically the same thing. Uh, via nuclear weapons, but at at, um, uh, at its core, uh, there hasn't been any true uh, progress, e- even from from that perspective, because ultimately these technologies are quite uh, unidimensional, um, and uh, they they don't really allow for a more uh, parallel ability to construct and and build multi-scale and uh, and, and fractal environments like like nature does. So yeah, I, I don't know. Did that uh, did that help ground the way that I that I think about it at all? Sure, sure. So let's say like, what do you what what do you think the future is going to look like in like a midterm time frame? Like, do you think it's going to look more like uh, the movie Brazil, or do you think it's going to look more like an Orwellian state? Uh, how how do you see the, the, them differently? Well, my reading on the. Um, like in terms of Orwell was that it's going to be like much more authoritarian and controlled and like efficiently regulated. Um, I mean, my, like when I, when I watched um, Brazil, it seemed much more disordered and chaotic, which allowed for more of like an underbelly um, of society to, to exist. So, I mean, like, do you think it's going to be ordered or disordered? I guess would be the question. I I, I think that this, this topic has come up several times in the past decades as well of the last 200 years. Um, and what, what, what we are seeing is this weird interplay between order and disorder where uh, disorder becomes more uh, minute uh, and, and at the same time, um, order becomes more uh, harder to fight. So when now that you painted this picture of where you see the differences between Orwell and, and uh, uh, Brazil, I think I think I'll 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 be more towards sort of the, the side of Brazil, uh, basically for for the reason that um, if hum- humanity was uh, as good as we think we are with uh, the creation of uh, technological systems of the creation of of laws. Uh, of the governance of um, countries, companies, families, communities, whatever. 
uh, then you'd, you'd expect to see that that order that, that sound, looks more like Orwell, where it's sort of inescapable. It's, it's always there, and and even even your ability to fight the system is really just an illusion. Um, I, I don't really think that the world works that way. Um, to me, the real danger is Brazil, where um, you, if, if you think of technology as just memory, right? Um, what, what I mean by that is that without uh, being tied to previous generations and their, um, the morphology that they uh, uh, created, uh, around dead matter, like if you if you think of all of all of the machines that we have, they are basically uh, inorganic matter that we have shaped in various ways for various purposes, and now we have sort of a chain of this inorganic matter that we have fashioned in, in, in various tools and configuration, and, and that is literally the memory of our uh, of our uh, previous ancestors, and when when we don't have some documentation about the, how these tools uh, uh, were purposed in originally, how how they failed, how how, how to repurpose them, um, what what we see is all of this uh, sort of aggregation of tooling and, and and objects and and technology that we don't really know how to use. We don't really know when to sunset the technology and when to um, basically when to kill it off and and, and say okay, this was. Uh, uh, a, a nice game for what it lasted, but let's uh, uh, let's stop it now before it uh, harms us even more, or before it bores us. Whatever whatever the problem is that we identify, uh, but what what we see is just this continuation of these ways of being that most people don't really want. Like for example, one the, the, the main um, example that I have in my mind is cruises. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, L or UJ are are fans of cruises. I. I find them ghastly, um, but um, I've been on that... one in my life, and it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever experienced. To be completely honest with you, yeah, <laughs> I, it, it, it's just one of those things that uh, ought to fail. It ought to go away. Mm-hmm. It is so easy, and and think what happened uh, now with COVID. The cruise industry was hit very hard. Well, they should have gotten. They should have been. They would have been done. I mean, the interesting part about the cruise industry is that most of them are registered in the Caribbean or foreign countries. And we act, I'm pretty sure we actually ended up bailing them out with U.S. taxpayer money. So, like, the market actually did eliminate the cruise industry. It's been kept alive. You may remember, Jay, that it was that moment when you informed me that they were bailing out those cruises that I just about had a nervous breakdown. That was probably the most stressful moment of all of it for me, especially in the beginning phase, when I found out they were bailing out the cruises, it was clear to me that uh, truly something horrible was awry. That's right. But, but yeah, that's exactly, think of cruises as sort of an archetype uh, or, or the apotheosis, if you will, of, of how we deal with technology. Um, there are a lot of branches of, of developmental um, uh, tech that we need to just shut down. Um, we're not, but we, but we don't. We don't because of this, you know, what you call 
what philosophers call ontological design, uh, in that this re reflexive relationship that uh, humanity creates uh, with its tools. In that it's not that the tool is built to solve something for humanity, is that after a while, uh, the tool becomes the purpose of life. You know, just humans create a symbiotic relationship and then get defined by the tools. And this is not a, an easy problem because humanity is defined by tools. Like when you, you think about the idea, okay, um, let's figure out when humanity uh, first uh, came to the came to the picture, how do you find that out, right? You cannot really use some uh, uh, biomorphic criteria. Uh, you, you're not really sure if, if those homids uh, had consciousness the way we, we have it right now. But one of the easiest ways to see, hey, did they have art? Did they have other tools? And so this is very important about how we define humanity. Like we, we get our humanity by the way we use inorganic matter, by the way we use tools. And um, the way that I see it, I think that um, as we went through the Industrial Revolution, we started to worship uh, power and progress even more than uh, our species allows us to. And, and now we are in, in a process of worshiping computers, worshiping information technology. And uh, I think that that midterm future that you talk about is going to look a little bit more uh, like Brazil. I mean, look look at New York now, right? Um, look at San Francisco now. If, if, look at uh, if, even Las Vegas. Uh, it might be a bit cleaner, I guess, and, and more polished. But it to me, it still gives me that artificial, uh, top-down, uh, unidimensional monocultural uh, creation that is yeah you might you might you know you might get the food and the and, and, and the comfort from air conditioning and and some high saturated media to, to make you forget about your own existence for a couple of hours but at the end of your stay in Las Vegas you don't feel better you don't feel recalibrated you feel like just oh I, thank god i wasted a little bit of my existence in this place in in, in the globe and then and then you continue right so um yeah if you're lucky what's that that's if you're lucky i think you walk away saying that yeah <laughs> uh unfortunately I've, I've had to go uh, a few too many times to las vegas because of conferences and, and uh, you know tech conferences usually in the in the West Coast, happen around Las Vegas because it's one of the few places that has that um, uh, has that uh, infrastructure. But you know, I I, I really don't like Vegas, um, and uh, I was so disappointed when one of the one of the gals that is serving our in our mind mind space, uh, Riva, uh, wrote this piece about how the future of the United States is the future of Las Vegas. Basically, <laughs> it was a, it was a good piece. It was a good article. I'd like to read that. I mean, I, I've always I, I perceive yeah. that I perceive that as a as a sort of a white flag. Like, oh, we have no, I you know, just we're done basically. <laughs> if you're if you're going to equate the future of the United States with Las Vegas, okay, it might <laughs> might as well be over. Well, they got bailed out. They all got bailed out too. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah, but yeah. I think I think um, the. I think the economic situation reflects what you just said earlier, um, like leaning more towards the Brazil view where like, it's not so top down driven as much as it is just like with these, um, like every couple of years we have to pump money into the system and bail out companies just to keep the whole thing going. Like it's very much like a, 
we're just slapping on band-aids onto onto um problems when they develop like the analogy i like to use it's like it's like a dam and there's like all these cracks coming through the dam and we're plugging one at a time until it feels like eventually it's going to break um but but yeah i think it's much more likely that we enter the the brazil type scenario than than anything more ordered but another question that i wanted to ask you already and um I guess also since uh, since you just recently moved, um, like what 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 do you think? Um, do you think it's necessary to keep like living in these uh, like densely populated tech cities? Like to me, it's just like extremely um, like mentally stressful and anxiety inducing, and like it's like it feels like torture, <laughs> like just to just to be in some of these disordered environments. Like, do you see it that way or no? Where were you raised? Were you raised in um, um, Pleasantville, uh, suburbia, in, in Main Street, United States, or were you raised in a big city? It was a small town in Pennsylvania, about eighty thousand people. Well, uh, I was I was raised in the capital of Albania, uh, Tirana. So Tirana was uh, originally a very small uh, community. Um, really, it wasn't. Uh, a a very powerful town. Uh, it was quite oriental in the sense that uh, I, I think it was the majority of the population was Muslim. Uh, this was uh, during the 1800s, by the way. Um, and uh, there, there's, there were not a lot of things about it that were remarkable. Uh, but it was chosen as, uh, as the capital because it was uh, right in between the north and, and the south. And uh, um, the Albanian founding fathers were, were scared about, were, they, they were fearful about uh, uh, Greek incursions and Greek influence as well as Serbian influence and incursions. So they, they, they found this place and um, the, the, the Tirana became the capital. And then um, when the communists uh, uh, came in the, after World War II, uh, then they started these planned projects. Uh, but it, it was very hard to transform, to destroy all of Tirana, which was uh, basically uh, made out of small houses uh, with winding streets. It was very hard to destroy all of that and build this uh, top-down planned community. So they, they did their best because, again, if, if they went that way, they would destroy everything and um, there would be no soul to, uh, uh, to the capital. But they did what they could. Um, and uh, in 40 years or 45 years when they ruled, um, only people that were allowed by the communists could move into Iran. And I think in the 90s, it was a 200,000 inhabitant city. Uh, so that, that's quite small. Um, it was, uh, maybe it could uh, accept a, a higher capacity, maybe 300, 4,000 people. Um, when you look at... Uh, when you look at videos of the 80s uh, in Tirana, the first thing that you notice is how all of the, the main boulevards and the main streets were empty. There were no cars because uh, the uh, private citizens couldn't own cars and the only cars that were available were owned by the, by the state. And um, after the 90s, when democracy and the liberal market came, everyone that wanted to move to Tirana could. And that's when I came of age. I came of age at a time where this uh, city that was designed for 200,000 people uh, grew to a million 
200,000 over the span of 15 years. So you can imagine what it felt like. Uh, the traffic, the smog, the noise, the just being a little bit stuffy. Uh, but at the same time, the, the energy, the uh, sort of the sexual tension of being around a lot of young people. And there was always something happening. It, it, it was fun. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I saw both the good and the bad of, of living in, in these um, uh, tightly packed and dense environments that I, I can't uh, I can't tell you that oh, the cities are going to disappear forever and, and they're, 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 you know, they're just there for poor people to live closer to each other. I don't know what, uh, what you know, what take we could have, what edgy take we could have about the existence of cities. Uh, but, you know, I legitimately think that um, cities are quite attractive. They, um, they, they, they have enough order uh, to to give us the basics uh, the basic uh, uh, utilities of life, um, but at the same time they have this layer and this level of uh, uh, fun and and surprise and that, that you don't get anywhere else. This is one of the reasons why people move to cities because uh, I I wouldn't say that it is because oh I want to uh, to make more money. It's more that it feels more fun. It feels more alive. Like um, because of yeah, basically serendipity, and I think there's something beautiful about serendipity that uh, makes us uh, uh, feel fulfilled, feel uh, feel better about our life on Earth. That um, I, I don't know that you get in suburbia. I don't know that you get in a small town. It becomes too too predictable. So I don't know. That, that, that is my that is my main aesthetic feel about this question. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Wonder like now it seems to me like we really turned a corner though on like it felt like like I I um I lived in New York from eighteen to like twenty five and I definitely relate to what to what you just said but I wonder how much of that is just because we were young um, like that we just naturally felt that way um, but I think what cities really do is they could keep um, a small amount of disorder or serendipity as you called it. Um, that people could enjoy and take part in like some sort of underbelly to the civilization. But like, and sure, you're not going to find that in suburbia, but I wonder that like, it feels to me like we've really turned a corner though on like how much of that is going to be like, just frankly allowed to take place. Like, especially with the coronavirus restrictions, like I just wonder how much of, of the feeling that you just described is going to remain like going forward. Yeah, I think I think that's a really insightful point, Jay. I mean, uh, I would say even taking it further, you know, not just starting with this coronavirus situation, but also the uh, the the way that cities at large and, you know, certain obvious places like New York and San Francisco and, and in gen and specifically have been have become these increasingly kind of sterilized environments in which uh you know, relatively little of that kind of very interesting, vibrant, eclectic culture that a lot of us think of when we think of with cities has remained. And this is a big thing, I think, more specific to the US. And, you know, I think a lot of people throughout the rest of the world 
um, maybe they they can relate to this a little bit less, but I feel like it's kind of being felt on some level everywhere that uh, these sort of vibrant, interesting cultures and subcultures are, are kind of being pushed to the fringes. So Artie, what, what um, lessons do you think that the West can learn from the situation in Albania? Yeah, um, well, um, the situation in Albania. <laughs> what, what do you know about the situation in Albania? So when, uh, when somebody tells you, I'm from Albania, what, um, uh, what do you have in that folder in your mind? And, and, and I don't have that much in my mind. I have a little bit. Um, I mean, yeah. so um, I, mean, I was chatting with you briefly already and before we got started here and telling you that my parents are, uh, you know, immigrants from the Soviet Union. Uh, so uh, while I don't have any, any specific kind of direct knowledge of Albania itself, uh, I have a, a pretty general sort of understanding of, of uh, kind of countries behind the Iron Curtain, if you will, as compared to countries on the other side of that Iron Curtain. Uh, also, I, I happen to have uh, been in the U.S. military years and years ago, and I took a brief uh, tour to Afghanistan. And when I was there, I served as basically uh, part of NATO, which included uh, just a whole ton of countries that I don't have time to name. But a, a lot of the former Yugoslavian countries were there. And uh, while I don't, I was, I don't think I mentioned to you, I. I don't think there were actually anyone from Albania, and I'm not sure if Albania itself is in NATO or what, but uh, I, I heard, you know, Albanians would come up from time to time. I mean, obviously Kosovo and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the, the extent of my exposure to even the idea of Albanians or Albania. Yeah. Uh, so we, we are in NATO. Um, I'm fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you want to slice that up. Um, so you probably might have uh, might have hung around with some Albanians there. Um, it's funny I'm, enough, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't meet anyone from the Albanian National Army that I can remember. But there was pretty much every other uh, former Yugoslav Republic. Um, yeah. And I don't think Albania was actually part of the former Yugoslavia, was it? It, it, it was not, no. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. That was a good decision that our dictators took. So, but um, let me see. So, what is the situation in Albania? And I guess the, one of the most salient um, data points that I can could highlight uh, is from um, a questionnaire that was administered to students. I think maybe a year or two ago. No, a year or two ago, something like that. Uh, and it uh, basically asked students if they, Albanian students in Albanian universities, if they wanted, to, uh, after graduation, if they wanted to stay in the country or if they wanted to leave. And the, I, I think the number was 85% of the respondents wanted to leave. Uh, and that is, um, I, I think that is salient because uh, that's what you, that's what you get as a feel when when you go there. It's uh, first of all, it's a beautiful country. It's uh, it's a Mediterranean climate. It has uh, beautiful coastlines and, and and amazing mountain ranges. Um, but uh, one of the, one of the other uh, um, features of the country is the fact that it is uh, um, 
it is what I call bro um, broken metaphysically in that it has many different religions, uh, at least four, but I'm sure that we have various uh, Protestant denominations as well, um, which are probably smaller, but uh, Catholics, uh, Orthodox, um, Sunni, Shia, we, we have them all in the country. So I think that, that is one of the most important uh, aspects of it. And um, the fact that the majority of uh, young people want to leave uh, tells you a lot. Uh, in that, in a way, we've been blessed with, with a beautiful uh, landscape, yet somehow we cannot manage to, to make it work. Uh, we cannot uh, manage to be together there and, and make it a beautiful place. And um, uh, for, for many years, I uh, dwelled on that question of why it is that the country is not succeeding. Why isn't GDP growing? Why are political, uh, why is our political culture uh, broken? And uh, for years, I tried to find the solution in the, in the liberal uh, or libertarian market-driven uh, understanding of how uh, countries succeed and how they flourish. But uh, the more time I spent in, in the Bay Area around uh, uh, technologists and around economists and political thinkers, um, and just, just by experiencing the way of life in the United States, the more I think that it has to do with the fact that we are a metaphysically broken country. Uh, and when you live within Albania, you don't notice that. Uh, you don't notice it because it's inculcated into you since a young age. Um, one of the Albanian founding fathers was uh, uh, this uh, Ottoman, uh, Ottoman uh, politician named Pashko Vasa. Uh, he was uh, actually one of the uh, governors of uh, Lebanon. So the Lebanon of Nassim Taleb, right? Uh, and uh, in, in Lebanon, he saw all of the, uh, th this was in the 1800s, by the way, uh, he saw all of the problems that uh, various uh, uh, religious strife uh, or a very religious denomination and their strife uh, caused for the country. And he, uh, he wrote a poem that is re recited and uh, memorized by all Albanian children that uh, uh, don't look at uh, mosques or churches. The faith of Albanians is Albanianism. Uh, and so we tried to build um, a country in a way uh, from nationalistic uh, means because we couldn't utilize faith. Um, we, we couldn't utilize metaphysics. Uh, and we built it at the end of the 1800s, where uh, all of the, sort of the energy was towards the, the democratic liberal uh, project. Uh, and, and, and I think we, uh, we, we did our best with what, what, we, what we could, so to speak. But um, when, I, when I think of why uh, Albanians sort of is, most Albanians want to leave the country, uh, I think it's, it's because we don't have uh, some of those more embedded, uh, complexity-minded, uh, uh, localist aesthetics that imbue older religions. And uh, I, I think one of the things that re religion does is that it creates, literally it creates a soul 
of, of a community. It does it through, uh, uh, through rituals. Uh, it does it by bringing people together um, and, and forming bonds. Uh, and it does it by building those bonds of faith that are so important in, uh, in the management of, uh, uh, of, econ of, of companies, of, of uh, economies, of governments. And when you lack that, when you are basically raised by an atheistic, um, reasonable, mathematical, mechanical, uh, authoritarian, top-down regime like the communists were, uh, it becomes very hard for the country to build those human bonds. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we were ever able to, to build those. Um, after after the communist regime fell because all, all that we did was try to emulate the west uh, and west of us is italy so we try to emulate italy and we look at okay what are the italians looking at and uh, berlusconi uh, uh, the ex-prime minister of italy he was a, a, a media magnet he had some of the, the largest uh, uh, TV, or most powerful uh, TV stations in Italy, and uh, we would see what they would watch, and they would watch the United States. Basically, they would get uh, programming from the United States. They would dub it in uh, in Italian, and so that's what we would watch. We would watch Americans, and then when you you uh, you think of where, where is this, where are these uh, stories and these ideas about how to comport yourself into this new world? Where are they coming from? Well, lo and behold, they all come from from California. Uh, right, and uh, so it's not—it's not—they are not our stories, right? And so what, what I what I think is happening to the country is that we start with this broken metaphysics of having um, uh, within our borders uh, different religions, and on top of that, you have sort of this uh, TV uh, TV milieu or TV zeitgeist. Uh, that comes with stories that were created um, in, in different parts of the world and that they are pushed uh, towards the periphery. And now on top of that layer, uh, you add the even more broken, uh, the even more multidimensional internet uh, culture. So imagine trying to create now some order where you have all of this uh, fracturing at, at, different, at different layers. So when it comes to the question of, hey, what can the world learn uh, from Albania? I think that's, uh, that's the main uh, aspect that comes to mind, like protecting your stories and, uh, and creating some gravity uh, and some focus and some attention through rituals on the important stories that uh, end up defining a group of people. I think it was Bap that had a tweet about it, or I just saw it recently, and he was explaining how um, a lot of the what purport to be like local news outlets in Europe are actually set up like by Soros and other internationalist um, internationalist actors, and then like the U.S. major news um, outlets cite these quote unquote like local publications, but none of the local people actually even like read. Or have heard of these publications? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I studied and I graduated in uh, Soros's university, so uh, I know a little bit about uh, a little bit about that mindset. And uh, it is um, 
in a way, it's one of the few few ways that people can service the, the the desires that are built by TV. So you want to get out. You want what the Americans want, right? You want the big houses and powerful cars and 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 all that comes with it. And it, it's very hard to do it in in a place where where the economy. Uh, that doesn't doesn't work with, and then you have people like Soros that come into uh, to uh, to the picture, and they offer various avenues to to get uh, to, to maybe learn to study or uh, to to get out from that local uh, local place and come to a more international uh, uh, to more international conversation. Uh, the the challenge that I had, however, was that. Um, a lot of the folks that go through these avenues, they tend to start worshiping these avenues and become very, um, very dogmatic without understanding that they are dogmatic, um, and that's that's quite unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's even a problem to a significant extent within the United States itself. You know, uh, you mentioned that basically all this media is emanating from Southern California. You know that, and I yeah. think that uh, a lot of the U.S., especially the rural U.S. Um, is has for you know a generation or two now at the very least been in a situation where the the whole media that is supposed to construct the culture that they're living in is representing different people entirely you know people who live in a totally different context and and I think they feel uh, I think it's it's responsible for a lot of the kind of social strife whether you want to look at social media for that, or you want to look at uh, the kind of uh, the, the political, uh, you know, discussion that's that's uh, infusing everything, it's I think a lot of this angst over the fact that they just don't feel represented in any way. Uh, indeed, um, I, I remember one of the main aspects um, of growing up in Albania during the nineties was the fact that. Um, we spent a lot of time watching Italian teams. So every Albanian was a fan of a particular uh, Italian soccer team. And I, I found that very weird, but at, at the time I did not, did not have the vocabulary or the conceptual framework to analyze it and understand what, what do I find so distasteful about something that uh, everyone did, everyone did. Uh, and I, I think, I think what was strange was that after um, the communist regime fell, uh, a lot of the properties that were managed by them, right, there was no private property, uh, none whatsoever. Uh, most of the uh, the football teams, they were part, or the soccer teams, they were part of different institutions. For example, we had uh, Partizani. Uh, Partizani was the soccer team of the military. Uh, and then we had the Tirana Football Club, and I think that was uh, the, if, if I'm not mistaken, well, no, I don't know whose who's, uh, club there were, but we had uh, one football club, Dinamo, uh, they were part of the police. So the police had their football club, and then the military had their football club, and I guess, I don't know, some factory owners had a football club. The, um, it didn't matter, or uh, factory workers. So that, that's how it worked, and everyone was um, uh, a fan of their uh, the team that their father worked in. For example, if their father worked in the military, was and so on and so forth. After the Knights fell, all of these networks they were nuked. They 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 they, they disappeared. Uh, 
um, within within a few months. And now, instead of having some embedded bond and having some way to 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 go from okay, I'm a child, I want to learn how to play soccer, and then from there I can uh, I can can grow and become a professional soccer player. We didn't have that anymore. All that was was just look watch. Uh, watch TV and see the others play, mm-hmm. right? Uh, see Milan, see Inter, see Juventus play, and I, the same thing is kind of happening to uh, a lot of areas within the United States, right? Uh, sometimes I, I joke that the that Albania is basically an, an American uh, state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically owned by the State Department. We, we do whatever the State Department wants us to do. And, and in a way, we are uh, not unlike some of these, uh, what I would call dis, uh, disintensified territories within the United States, right? You have these um, imperial cities like uh, um, uh, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, Chicago, and so on and so forth. But then you have these areas where no, almost no culture is produced, right? People don't produce, you know, they don't make their clothes, they don't make their food, they don't make... Uh, they don't make their music, and it's just like they're they, they barren cultural landscapes. They are completely disintensified, uh, and in, in many cases, they're farming colonies. You know, among yeah. other things, right? Just resource production colonies in a way. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, absolutely right. Um, they, they don't have a choice in how to interact with their world. Uh, so the design decisions are made elsewhere, and then the products uh, or, or, or the, the, the shapes. Think about think about all the products that we uh, consume. Think of them just shapes, like shapes of reality. All of those are sort of crystallized and then pushed uh, to these people. And then you are, uh, as an individual, as a human being, in, being raised in one of these uh, these intensified zones, you, uh, you the world is quite confusing. It's basically a, f- a fracturing of different products, uh, of different ways of being. That your culture had no say in. There, there was no organic connection to uh, to to how your bottom up life works to these the products that are coming uh, uh, that are coming from the top. Well, and then on top of that, there has been, especially in recent years, such an, an open tendency for urban elite culture in general and, you know, kind of university-based culture in particular to just very openly mock and dismiss any semblance of culture that a lot of these communities have remaining. So, you know, uh, and, and again, we see that kind of portrayed in, in this uh, media, which, which emanates from those places. You know. I think, do you think that uh, that is new? Uh, I have a, I have a no. perception that that is quite old. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's the, as old the, as empire in, in general, yeah. I think. Yeah. But, but, but I think the, in, uh, quote unquote, the innovation within this last cycle that we're in, uh, especially within the United States, is that now um, the the imperial cities uh, perceive the these disintensified uh, areas as being evil. Uh, that that is what I think has been the innovation. Whereas before they were simply uh, parochial, uh, you know, uh, a bit dowdy, a bit dull, a bit uninteresting. Um, now they're they're simply evil. And I think this is sort of one of the, the main dangers that, uh, that we're seeing. And the, 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 right, uh, the right wing sees that mostly 
uh, as be, well, the right wing, the, the conservative right wing sees that as being mostly uh, an effect of, um, of uh, uh, people not uh, getting to work and not, uh, um, not having access to work. Um, the, uh, the far right sees that as a more problem of, of communities, that people don't have an ability anymore to, to be part of community. Uh, and, then, and then the left uh, sees that as uh, sort of this is a problem that uh, originated in capitalism and it's a problem with markets and, uh, um, and then we need to fix capitalism and the markets. And the, the, the main problem, the tragedy, is that each of these uh, groupings um, they have a certain part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. They, they understand something that is uh, part of, like, very important to the puzzle. Uh, but I, I, I don't know how easy it's going to be to, to, do, to form one cohesive puzzle and have everyone uh, speak the same language. Usually uh, history is, is quite... A, uh, quite a harsh teacher in this case is uh, it's, it's clear what happens you know? and uh, this is in a way what uh, my hope for bitcoin is and um, the company that i'm building and that it can be sort of uh, a different uh, meet uh, a different language uh, for people to interact with each other and form uh, different worldviews and different uh, ways of being uh, that uh, can that will stop this inevitable um, move of history towards towards Can you elaborate on that a little bit, specifically with regard to uh, not just necessarily Bitcoin, but um, you know, cryptocurrency in general, and just any kind of decentralized currency? Um, you know, yeah. basically, to kind of explain to us why it is that we should be excited by that you know, that idea and, and what its potential is. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the, the, the roots of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are in a, in a very peculiar uh, Western conversation uh, that uh, has to do with the search for a perfect language. Um, I, I think this has been one of those key intellectual debates uh, that has formed the West um, through through the ages, but it's it's not clearly understood. Usually, when when we talk about the West, uh, we might point to uh, to the uh, uh, to Aristotle or to the ancient Greeks. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about Semitic influences through Christianity, um, and then maybe the conversation goes to Christianity, and then it's science, right? Science and, and industrialization, and then. And that, that, that's usually what, how the story goes. Would you would you agree with that, generally? For the most part, I think that's pretty much how it's framed. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the the part that's uh, that's missed is how uh, the, the the religious uh, understanding of the world get, uh, gave birth to the scientific uh, understanding of the world, and the way that happened was through this search for the perfect language. So. Um, how did this start? Well, during uh, during Christianity after the fall of the Roman Empire. So, uh, as as more more more, uh, more and more of Europe started to uh, to convert, um, various uh, uh, various thinkers uh, started to think about an original language 
that imbued, that, that was the one language that all of humanity spoke. Now, why is this interesting? Because uh, it, it's very much a philosophical, uh, a key philosophical uh, problem. All of, the, all of the ideas that we're discussing right now, so uh, culture, politics, economics, epistemology, metaphysics, uh, we can only talk about these things with, uh, uh, with language, with symbols, right? We, we don't have a real access to their essence, if there ever was such an essence. We, we only have access to these this, this flows of concept, right? And um, uh, various, uh, various thinkers in the past were trying to figure out, well, how do we create a more uh, harmonic humanity, a humanity that's tied together, that works well, and that, uh, that brings about human flourishing? Um, and I think that as Europe started to think about this, this question, we actually were able to create one of the more uh, beautiful uh, parts of the world that, uh, that legitimately flourished and, and created some of the most beautiful art, artifacts and ways of being that uh, truly enrich our lives, yet at the same time created some of the, the uh, sort of the, the harshest, most ferocities that we've seen. But um, I think that Ultimately, Bitcoin is tied with these um, uh, this particular um, work that started in the West. So um, again, the goal was to find the language that uh, uh, unambiguously expressed uh, the essence of all possible things and concepts. Uh, one one language that allowed humans to communicate without uh, without noise, without disorder, right? Um, and um, it, it was a, a language that allowed us to understand ourselves, nature, and that's God. Uh, and by, by going through this, the, the, by, by doing this, uh, it would allow us to coexist and, 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 and have um, sort of better group, uh, intergroup dynamics and uh, lead to, to human flourishing. So um, initially, the, the thinking was that uh, the the, the 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 perfect language was the the language of Adam and Eve, right? It was the language that was speak, uh, that was spoken in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then as uh, and, and then people thought, okay, probably this language was uh, was Hebrew, um, and they started to dwell a little bit more into uh, Kabbalistic ideas about finding secret meanings in Hebrew text, uh, but then this idea went. Um, uh, slowly went out of fashion uh, and people started to think of um, maybe a, a deeper language that tied all of the other language uh, together, something like a, a, a pre-Tower uh, of Babel language. Uh, and at this point, uh, things became, uh, became really fun. Um, you had some, some thinkers like uh, Raymond Lull, uh, who was a priest in, uh, in uh, Mallorca uh, during the, I think, either 12th or 13th century. Uh, and well, basically this guy, um, he kind of lived in the world that I described to you uh, when it came to these disintensified zones, right? Albania or middle of nowhere, United States. Uh, Mallorca at the time was a place of many ideas. You had Christian, Jewish, uh, culture, uh, uh, Arab cultures, all, all meeting uh, in the same place and, and trying to communicate, trying to create something new, trying to trying to live a good life. And Lau um, started to think about this universal language that uh, that could basically articulate all thoughts in the most pure way, and uh, allow for 
the ability of Christians uh, to convert uh, uh, non-believers uh, solely through this powerful language. So he, he knew that uh, different people had access to, to different ways of speaking, different ways of looking at the world. And his hope was that with his system, uh, he would allow for, for, the, uh, for finding of God, finding of a better, uh, better way to live. Uh, slowly, uh, these, this vision of, uh, of love uh, is connected with uh, thinkers like Leibniz. Uh, Leibniz was very well uh, aware of, um, uh, of love in his work. Uh, and uh, he, uh, in a way, he continued, uh, he continued this work. So uh, Leibniz, on one hand, wanted to identify sort of a, a system of um, of primitives, of, of, of a basic uh, alphabet and, and an ideal grammar, uh, an ideal logic that uh, uh, we could all uh, we could all see its truth and we could all agree with it. And if you if you know a little bit about Leibniz, he was uh, he was crucial in the creation of uh, um, the the logic the, the binary logic that uh, uh, we use today in computers. So it starts with People like Lau, uh, it, it transforms with uh, Leibniz. Uh, it grows through uh, people like George Bull, who, uh, who basically uh, wrote the laws of thought, uh, which is basically the, uh, the computational system that uh, uh, CPUs and computers use today. You know, all those uh, and or gates, all of that stuff. This comes with George Bull, who was influenced by, um, was influenced by Leibniz. Um, and then Boole and Leibniz and all the others, they, they influence people like Bertrand Russell, who, who tries to find a, a grounding for mathematics, a, a way to speak about mathematics in, a, um, in the best way possible. And this also uh, goes and influences people like um, uh, people like Hilbert, uh, Godel, Turing. And so this is this is where we are today, right? We are continuing the search for a perfect language, this better way to speak about reality, uh, this way to, to measure value, uh, this way to, uh, to understand what good media is uh, and how we should shape ourselves in the future. Uh, I think that Bitcoin uh, specifically, but uh, you can say some other cryptocurrencies as well, are a continuation of this uh, deeply interesting project. And for me, uh, there is nothing more interesting than uh, trying to find, in a way, the language of God and trying to find a way how to speak together in the same way to uh, not only uh, achieve just bland harmony, but also uh, create a more fun world that, that leads to uh, to risk taking and 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 uh, you know it, it, it's more fun, it's more lively, and uh, it uh, ultimately leads to more human flourishing. You know, this was a conversation that we had with Mark that I wanted to dive into a little bit deeper. Um, so my main concern with Bitcoin is that it it like in in aligning the economic incentives the way that it does, it seems to me that it pushes like this sort of libertarianism or hyper-capitalist um, economic like allocation of resources. So like my question about that really is like, what, is there anything within the Bitcoin infrastructure that can be used um, to like, to, to moderate those effects? Like, is there any room for morality within 
like a true Bitcoin environment? Uh, ultimately, uh, Bitcoin is a protocol. Uh, it's it, it, it's a way of being around. Uh, it's around computers. Uh, I, I think the the most important aspect that uh, I would highlight is the fact that um, right now the, the main problem that we're seeing is a uh, a conflation. Well, actually, not a conflation, but a, a, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, between the the Gathams of the world, right, the Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Facebooks of the world, um, with uh, with governments, they are uh, coming becoming tighter and tighter together, uh, and I think we are in danger of seeing uh, the same dynamics that we have witnessed more explicitly in uh, in the Chinese Empire. Uh, where uh, supercomputers are used to uh, to govern uh, humanity, and I think that uh, based on you know the conversation, the initial conversation that we had around Brazil, um, the the lessons of history as well, uh, I, I think we ought to be very cautious as we are updating our tools for control. Um, I think that when when we look, for example, at uh, one of the defining uh, times of our uh, uh, our current era, World War II, um, that that dynamic was imbued, empowered, accelerated, called what you will, uh, by some of the new media that they use. And when I look at what uh, what is happening uh, today uh, within America, I'm seeing sort of the, the same type of, of behavior uh, in, in a very abstract way where we uh, are updating our governance uh, structures with these new supercomputers. And it, I think it will create um, a very different way of being, uh, a very different life that is, uh, I don't know that many people are aware of how unappetizing and uh, how unattractive it's going to be. So when I, when I think of Bitcoin primarily, I think of it as a, uh, as a protocol, as a system, as a way of being uh, that is in direct competition with the current um, uh, uh, synthesis of uh, uh, computation and uh, governance that has been sort of minted in, in, in Europe, China, and the United States. So I think that um, this is the most important and salient uh, feature of, uh, of Bitcoin. It becomes uh, a global computational system, uh, much like Google is. Um, but it it has uh, different incentives. Uh, it has uh, a, a different culture. And it has a different way way of being. All of these uh, allow you to create and compete with with these more um, uh, more more. Uh, I'm going to just be frank here with these more corrupt ways of being that come out from the uh, west coast, from both the west coast and the east coast of the United States, and and Beijing and Moscow and so on and so forth. So, uh, I, I think that is the most important feature of, of Bitcoin: the fact that it allows us to compete and have a conversation um, with uh, with very powerful uh, entities. On on a second topic, uh, I guess is that the, the question of okay, let's say that. Um, we compete well. Let's say that Bitcoin uh, as a global computer, um, uh, th this idea grows. Uh, what happens then? Uh, what, is there anything in Bitcoin that allows uh, 
that, that allows this system to be uh, better than what uh, Google, uh, Apple, and, and and Washington are creating. Uh, and I think that the answer there is not uh, is not easy. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the danger is 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 quite real. Uh, I, I commend you for highlighting it. Uh, I think it's important to do so. Um, I think that in our, our current zeitgeist, we uh, very often worship tools, we worship technologies, we worship uh, engineers. Uh, we put them, uh, we, we give them uh, too much power, to be frank. Uh, and we think, we basically think that we're going to find our salvation in this world. We're going to find our salvation with GDP increase or with uh, by, by getting rich, by getting a bigger house, on and so forth. Very well put. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to thank you for putting that in appropriately religious terms. Please. Go yeah, ahead. no, I've, no I've, I've always said it was just uh, uh, solutionism is, uh, is a branch of soteriology. So soteriology is the sort of the study of salvation, <laughs> and right now you know when you when you go into an American company, um, you're going to hear the word solution so many times. I, <laughs> I come from a girls' background, and I, I always had the uh, inner chuckle when I was here. Like, oh, we're bringing a solution and solution, and it, it, it's very funny because always makes me think of final solution. Yeah, right. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, no, they're, they're very they're very tied together actually. Oh yeah. Uh, but, yeah, at the same time, um, you, you are selling engineering tools. And what, what's the main, main sort of lesson of engineering? The main lesson of engineering is that there's always going to be, uh, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Uh, there's only going to, always going to be a give and take, right? Uh, and it's not that uh, the sort of good, uh, good business conversations don't go at this level. They obviously do. Uh, in many aspects, but I think that the, the, the underlying narrative in the United States is always that of, of solutions, solutions, and solutions that uh, can always be found. And I, I don't think that you have uh, uh, any more powerful uh, leaders, uh, both in, either in business or in government, that have the, fort- the moral fortitude and, and, the, um, uh, and fortitude in other areas, to, to not be too colorful, uh, to, to basically say there are no solutions and there are not going to be any solutions and that's it, right? This is just not part of, of the uh, American way of being. But um, to sort of uh, uh, close this, uh, the, sort of this, this branch, um, I don't think that... Bitcoin will be able to solve a lot of our problems. In fact, if it if it becomes uh, as successful as I think it will be, um, uh, I think we can look in history at some of uh, some of the more interesting and colorful thinkers that we had. Someone like, for example, Giacomo Leopardi. Uh, he he lived very briefly. Uh, he was an Italian, I think, in, during the seventeenth century. But uh, this guy, he spoke about the problem of a universal language uh, in in less than uh, less than. Uh, uh, nice, uh, nice terms, so to speak. He he basically said that um, any any universal language, if it achieves its goal, uh, will create a, an enslaved, impoverished, uh, monotonous, uniform, ugly, uh, ugly world that is uh, inanimate and and bloodless, and is basically is going to create the ghost of a certain culture. And I think this is what we are already seeing with uh, sort of the. Um, the, the dominance of the uh, Washington Empire uh, with... Uh, well, you these, used the Tower of Babel metaphor earlier. Yeah, you know, I yeah. think that that's exactly what that's going for. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so um, Bitcoin suffers exactly from the same problem. Um, and, and, and I would say this, um, any protocol, any media system is, uh, is kind of a weapon. And when you, because it helps you achieve things, it helps you win battles. Uh, like you cannot think of an army without the communication system, without the way of behaving, so on and so forth, right? Uh, and when, when you look at rulers uh, back before democracy, uh, they have this, uh, these paintings, right? That they're the official paintings of, of the ruler. Um, and they usually come with the, uh, uh, two objects in their hands. So the ruler has a scepter and a globus crucifer. So uh, the scepter uh, was actually a, a change from from sword. They used to just have a sword. So if you look at the uh, Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Charlemagne, and so he just comes with a sword. He has a sword and a cross uh, for the globus crucifer. So now the sword is a symbol of power. It tells you how uh, how governance works. It works by uh, efficiency, by execution, uh, by mechanistic thinking. It works by power. It works through violence. On the other hand, literally on the other hand, we see uh, the globus crucifer. Now, the globus crucifer is obviously the moral, uh, theological, metaphysical system of uh, of um, Europe uh, post the, Rom- the Roman Empire, and it was deeply Christian. So that is a sort of highlight of the fact that you cannot rule, you cannot govern humanity, you cannot rule humans without both of these aspects uh, being there, right? You need to have sort of a deep understanding of the utilitarian mechanistic uh, aspects of governance, but at the same time, uh, you need to understand uh, that human beings uh, work through spirit. We work through uh, through visions of the future. We work through pictures. We work through stories. Right? We're we're not we're not computers. And when I think of of something like like Bitcoin, which already is quite uh, how should I how should I put it? It's quite uh, uh, quite rude in a way. It's quite rural right it's about money making money right away right it's a, it, it, it is not as as polished uh, of a of an endeavor right making just making money for the sake of making money um, even most of that i would say the the capitalists that uh, uh, the united states loves and cares about these people were not just driven uh by money Right, this was always something more, and, I, and usually I, I bring someone like this, the typical Steve Jobs, or, or maybe some uh, some of the, uh, some other uh, founders of uh, technological companies, and most of these people are not driven by oh, I, I need to meet my quarterly standards, and uh, we need to hike up the stock price. They are product-oriented people, and the product in and of itself is not because you know they're just pure geeks but because they love what this product does to humanity like when we when they bring this product and hu- humans play with it and people uh, create new ways of being around it that, that that's that's the fun that's the uh, exciting part and i think that um uh, and i think that anyone that wants to work on bitcoin uh cannot be primarily one of these Wall Street type of people that is just focused on money. It needs to be some, because it, oh, Bitcoin is already that, right? It doesn't need 
a person to be like that. What it needs is, is people that understand, um, I think, the more uh, metaphysical problems that humanity is facing right now. Um, and even though since the Reformation, we haven't been able to have in the West uh, good metaphysical uh, conversations, I think we are at a, at a point right now where we're going to hear more and more of those uh, metaphysical conversations. So when you when you think of Bitcoin, I would think of it as the scepter. I would think of it as the, the sword. Um, and, and just by virtue of being so good at what it is, uh, I think that it uh, it will engender the other side of it, which is the the, the global school figure. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, like your vision for ARC and like what role you see that um, playing within Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so when I uh, when I first moved into the United States, I was um, I was very much living my my American dream. Um, uh, I was a utilitarian, a materialistic, progressive kind of guy um, and I, I truly believe in the American dream and have everything that you you saw through Hollywood uh, and I and I thought and I took myself maybe a little bit too seriously if you will um, and I and I thought okay well okay now I, I have this amazing opportunity now I live in this place where everything is possible and people are active and they want to do stuff uh, what do I want to do with my life and the the thing that I decided I wanted to do was uh, change the monetary system and or uh, create a new education system. Uh, I thought th those were the fun things to do. Now, uh, I wasn't too full of myself, uh, thank God, and I didn't think that I would be able to change the monetary system, even though I knew a lot about um, uh, Bitcoin at the time. I still didn't think Bitcoin had the capabilities because I didn't really understand media and computation uh, that well. Uh, this was back in 2015 when I just moved in. Uh, Silicon Valley. But uh, long story short, uh, this is what I think uh, Bitcoin can do, uh, so, or ARC can do today. Um, it can uh, create a new uh, standard of measure uh, that uh, slowly can improve the way that uh, humanity learns and finds agreement on certain topics. Um, that, does that make sense or is it too broad? Like I, I can get into how ARC works today and what we want to build with it, but that is sort of the, the, the basic um, uh, aesthetic push that has, uh, has uh, sort of animated me towards creating this tool. So I do, uh, if I may have just a quick follow-up question as a parent who is uh, has been for years now deeply interested in uh, what's known as uh, unschooling, homeschooling, and just the whole process of decentralized yeah. Uh, family-based education, community-based mm -hmm. education. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how it is that uh, that, that uh, ARC can sort of contribute to that. You, you mentioned education uh, yeah. specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm also uh, sort of uh, interested in that in, in that uh, area of thinking. Uh, I, I do appreciate all of the work that's been uh, done into homeschooling. Uh, I love the, the localist aspects of, uh, uh, of the, the project, if you will. And uh, I also like that it's an uh, experimental um, uh, way of being. Uh, I think that a Bitcoin and ARC is ultimately complementary to that. Uh, it's complementary because uh, at the end of the day, uh, education is all it's it's not only about finding um, the base reality 
right? The, 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 the truth, right? Like you, you can think of, oh, we're going to teach children mathematics and physics, and now they know the truth. Mm-hmm. Everyone can sink on, on that because it's self-evident. Well, not really. It gets a bit more mm-hmm. complex mm-hmm. and complicated than that. But what, what I'm trying to say here is that um, there's a part of education that we usually ascribe to uh, the cost of education. Or we, we ascribe to this more, more uh, deleterious uh, aspect, which is just the fact that it produces people that think in the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I mean by this is, yeah, the, the, there is a problem with that, uh, definitely. But at the same time, it is a feature of education. The purpose of it is to to get people to to uh, write in the same way, uh, to speak uh, at least in uh, in intelligible uh, in an intelligible way. But intelligible in other ways means the same way, right? Uh, and so on and so forth. And this is why I think Bitcoin is important because ultimately you can have your uh, your personal internet server uh, where you have the most arcane or esoteric books and subjects in the world and you teach all of these things to your kids. What will be, however, knowledge that they can use, knowledge that they can utilize to, to change or uh, protect the, the morphology of the environment that surrounds them, that has to be shared at a certain point. So, uh, th- does that make sense, what, what, what I'm trying to say? 100%. Yeah. And so this is why I think ARC is important and Bitcoin is important, because ultimately it's, it's creating this, this, this ledger or this, uh, this computational system, the, the, this, uh, this institution, if you will, where you can always know where the information is and the shape of that information. So uh, you can think of it as the ledger of record. I've heard people uh, speak about it. And uh, this ledger of record uh, is the place where you go to find agreement. So, for example, if if we speak a little bit about epistemology right now and and we think about the idea of, well, how do we know what we know? Mm Uh, this was a, 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 there's this uh, problem that you come up uh, very very quickly, uh, which used to be called Agrippa's trilemma. Uh, now in modern time, it's called Munchausen's trilemma. Uh, but it, it was known by ancient Greeks. It is known by uh, most people today. And, and the basic uh, problem of the trilemma is that there's no easy way to know uh, what you know if that's the case. And in practice, uh, in every in the in everyday world, uh, what ends up happening is that we usually point to some authoritative uh, place, and we just say, "Okay, because Harvard said so, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, of the U.S. government said so." Now, um, scientifically speaking, that is not the proper way. Uh, what you'd want to do is show something. Um, uh, an event, uh, a, a dynamic, uh, show show that uh, empirically, empirically. And so people can uh, figure that out uh, in a self uh, by themselves, right? They can mm-hmm. repeat the experiment, and we can all agree it's self-evident. It's showing itself to you. The trouble is that for most important uh, human questions around, do we go left or right, up or down, straight or forward, so, you know, straight or backward, all of these. Uh, what we end up seeing is uh, a, 
multidimensional reality beyond what our minds are even able to accept. And there is a need for society to have a way uh, to, to come to an agreement. with. And I think that as, as Google and as Twitter uh, are making it harder for us to agree, and as, uh, as various other institutions are making it harder for us to agree with them, uh, Bitcoin becomes this next step of the puzzle where new uh, uh, talented uh, thinkers and, and builders and business people can come together uh, and start building on top of it. And then Bitcoin becomes the place where people say, well, how do you know that uh, Bitcoin said so? You know, I've been thinking a little bit about what's going to drive like the next wave of Bitcoin adoption. And it seems pretty clear to me that it's going to be um, like micropayments facilitated on social networks. Um, I know some of our friends built um, a product on BSV called Twitch that does this. Um, but also it seems that the, like the next big adoption wave to me will be um, probably Twitter adding um, Bitcoin transactions through Square, like through Jack Dorsey's other company. So I think I think that's going to be um, a way that Bitcoin gets more normalized within the culture. But I will say it, it does seem pretty disappointing to me that we're like, what, 10 plus years into Bitcoin at this point. And really, it is, as you said before, it's basically just a trading and speculation instrument. 10 years in. I mean, it's really incredible that, that we don't have more to show yet than that. I think a lot of people are, uh, you know, pretty justifiably apprehensive about taking what they perceive to be their real money and investing it into something that, you know, comes across as uncertain. I mean, I could definitely put myself in that category as someone who doesn't have, you know, a lot of disposable income to invest with. Um, I feel like uh, while I'm extremely excited about all of the different possibilities that cryptocurrency and any kind of decentralized currency provides, uh, I just don't feel like I have enough money to play with, you know, to do something like that. I think there's also a high barrier to entry, like just to, in terms of understanding, um, how the network works and what like benefits you could get out of it. But I think with more, um, programs like ARC and Twitch and, with people like really seeing the utility in it, then that, 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 that will help them grow in the long run. I think. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, there's just such a growing market for, uh, I hate to use such a silly sounding word, but alternative living solutions, you know, with a lot of the stuff that we have been talking about, uh, there is such a growing demand in things like, you know, tiny houses and alternative energies and alternative communities and different ways of setting things up that are allowing people to kind of find some way out of the, you know, so, some dystopian scenario, uh, whichever film it's best represented by. But uh, I mean, someone like myself, for instance, I've spoken a little bit on this show about the difficulties that I'm finding getting financing uh, to build the kind of home that would be economical for me, you know, on my property that I own out here. Uh, and just all of the different uh, financial and government, you know, red tape, to again, use a stupid buzzword that uh, is, you know, is making this extremely difficult for someone without uh, a bunch of money saved up to get access to capital. 
And while I don't know, I mean, maybe you can talk to us a little bit, RDN, about how, you know, something like Bitcoin or whatever version of cryptocurrency, you know, how that can help things like that. But it seems to me it certainly couldn't hurt to kind of decentralize uh, everything from all sorts of different kinds of innovation to uh, just alternative means of living and, and, and um, alternative community structures. I think it's only facilitates that kind of activity. Um, yeah, so yeah, a couple of things here. Uh, the first is regarding Jay's disappointment. Uh, well, uh, being sort of uh, the, the, the CEO of a, a Bitcoin company, um, I can tell you that, yeah, I, I would like things to move uh, faster as well. Uh, however, when, uh, when I joined Google, um, I joined with the idea that um, the internet was deeply changing the way we interacted with people, the way we did business, the way we were going to govern this country. Uh, and I, I was interested in working for Google Cloud uh, specifically because I thought that it would be a, a place that would uh, mold these conversations between the, the, the edges of, of innovation that were present within Google and with the more brick and mortar uh, classical minded companies uh, within the country. Uh, to... Now, when I, when I started this conversation with, with American leaders, business leaders, uh, I was under no pretense that they felt comfortable engaging in this conversation. So first of all, th this was not an area uh, that they were experts in. Second of all, this change um, around what, what you want to call the internet economy had happened way, way too fast, even, even faster than, um, even faster than, I don't know, electrification or, or, or what you will. Uh, we, we saw uh, a stupendous jump in, in the ability of, uh, or in the power or in the speed of CPUs, uh, in the ability to store, uh, in broadband, all of these foundational technologies, they improved so quickly uh, during the, uh, the first decades of, of this uh, century. And then they, they accelerated to no end in this decade, uh, in this last, in the second decade. Uh, and so you, you, you can imagine how these foundational tools uh, made uh, brick and mortar folks feel uh, not at ease and, and completely out of their depth. Um, one of one of my companies was Hallmark, for example, one, one of the, the companies that I had conversations with. And uh, Hallmark is still uh, uh, a privately uh, privately owned company. And uh, the folks are are quite old school there. And I like it. I, I love interacting with them. But uh, I, I, it's very hard to say that the companies like Hallmark and others in the United States are prepared for this new world. Um, they're not. And why, why did I tell you the story? Because just because you understand Bitcoin and, and you understand the internet and you, 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 so you're raised by it and you're molded by it, right? It's my best vain voice. Um, it, I, I think it biases you a lot towards seeing where base reality is out there. And it's very, very, very far away from uh, from from the world that we're in, and, and, and it takes time. 
it takes time and it's fine if uh, Bitcoin companies for uh, the next decade are going to be a little bit uh, uh, on, on the smaller side and we're going to see uh, more competition um, even with, with, with various um, uh, various blockchain companies and protocols out there. I, I think that's healthy. Um, I think that's good. I think that it's going to uh, it's going to surface better ideas. Uh, it's going to surface better leaders. And uh, in, in my way, this is it's working as as intended. It's working as designed. Uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of the main thing that I would highlight regarding your disappointment. We are, it's still early. Ten years about a magic internet money that you can move around the globe that has properties that are uh, very, uh, you know, arcane when, when it comes to the computer system. Most of, most people don't even know how to, to, to set up their password. You know, they, they don't understand anything about, uh, about computers. Uh, if, if, you, if you read a little bit about uh, computer security, it, it, most, uh, most breaches don't happen because the software was, had a problem. You know, it was an engineering problem. No, it happens because of human error. It happens because of phishing attacks. It happens because people don't understand the tools that you're using. They don't understand the tools that you're using because they don't don't understand the power, the importance. Uh, these are very complicated tools, and it takes a while to uh, to figure out how society should use computers and how we should uh, uh, how should we interact with them. Right? You can see today, for example, a lot of a lot of people use computers and they go to bed. They use a supercomputer. You know, they husband and wife. They have two supercomputers in front of their face. Children, they have supercomputers in front of their face while they're uh, they're eating dinner. Is this appropriate? How, how do we know if this is appropriate or not? You know, I, what, what I'm telling is that we're so early. We're, we're so early. These tools have moved so quickly. They have accelerated very quickly. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ground the disappointment into, uh, in, in, into this worldview. You know, one other, one other worry that I had about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that, like, I'm worried that big tech will just will, will use it and, and use their network effects over their, like, loyal customer base to just really double down on the, on the, on the data model. And it'll just become more of an invasive tool, like, like the blockchain will, um, than otherwise had existed before. Like, we, we asked Mark about this a little bit, um, but... Just wondering if you see any way to like like that bit that the Bitcoin um, infrastructure would prevent like the monopolization of the blockchain by Google. I think uh, there are two aspects here. First of all, um, what's happening within uh, these companies, so the, the GAFAM companies, and from a second perspective, what's happening outside the GAFAM companies. Um, I think uh, questions was more focused towards hey, what are the dynamics out there. Um, uh, in culture, in business, and economics, that uh, will allow people to use Bitcoin, and can Bitcoin be uh, useful to that? And I think that um, your question is more focused within what can the companies do, do internally to 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 uh, utilize some of the properties of Bitcoin and and become more powerful, so on and so forth, and 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 continue being uh, as crappy as they are, and 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 they're using sort of the capabilities of Bitcoin to, to, to become even more nefarious than they uh, currently are. So I, I think the, these two answers sort of kind of answer each other, these two, these two perspectives. Uh, first of all, from, from, from Al's point of view, um, we, we see that 
a lot of uh, legacy institutions, uh, they tend to become sclerotic. Uh, most of the, the incentive systems there end, end up being game, uh, and the products that are produced are not, uh, are not on par, are not what people want. And uh, the, the, the good ways of being, and I, I use this ways of being uh, as a general term uh, often because I think it's very important. You know, most of, most of the choices that we make are, are usually not very rational. It's more about the ways of being, or it's like a soul of the moment, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's like uh, back in Tirana, the only businesses in, during the 90s and the 2000s when I was there were clubs and bars and things like this. And you'd have usually a, a bar that would open up and people would, would flock into it. They would get what they needed from it. And then after two, three months, it would get old. It would get a bit uh, shabby and ugly and, and people start to move. And, and I think the, the way of being, the youthfulness, the aliveness, the human flourishing is exactly in that aspect of continuing uh, to move and continuing to fight uh, those uh, aspects of humanity that are wholesome and that are good and that are uh, life uh, affirming, you can only find them by moving outside of a current paradigm because those paradigms at a certain point become, uh, become game. Um, you can see that within Google, right now Google has become very subpar uh, search engine. So when you think that that search engine is the, the, the grounding, so the ground floor, the foundation of all of, it, all of its business, you understand how important this, um, this um, uh, uh, this development is. And so I think uh, people that try to find a, a more real way of being, they will always exit the systems and they will always go and try to find something that is genuine, something that is human, something that feels alive. Um, the other aspect of it is the fact that I don't think that uh, companies like Google uh, or Apple will be able to execute at this point. Um, this is the, the main reason why we're doing what we're doing, because we understand that mechanical systems end up becoming lifeless at a certain point. They can be, they can be uh, uh, bureaucratic systems in government or they can be bureaucratic systems in uh, private property in, or in, in the private sphere. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. They end up becoming mechanistic and lifeless. And... Um, it, and I, I don't think they will be able to execute. I think uh, companies like uh, like Google and like Amazon are uh, are spending too much time on uh, you know uh, identitarian politics at this point to to even execute good things. And the other thing is that uh, it's it's very hard for uh, individuals within of this within these companies to get the the power of a leader. And behave. Let's say, like, uh, let's take, uh, let's take an example from the NBA books, right? Like Jack Welch from uh, from the from the GE days. Like he comes and he sees this prowling empire of uh, General Electric companies, and some of them are, most of them are not doing well. And he basically says, "You're either going to be number one." in your uh, in your field or in your market uh or uh we're going to give you the boot and he he basically used the you know the gordian knot approach which you just you know drop the drop a sword and you destroy everything um everything that is laggardy and that is not not doing very well uh, i don't think that there are a lot of people in these companies that have the fortitude and the ability to uh sort of the the, the justification that someone like larry 
uh, page would have or someone like um, like the actual founder would have. At this point, I think these companies are just too slow, too big, too bureaucratic, and um, and you know if you if you if you talk to people in the left, uh, they're basically saying, yeah, this is what Marx spoke about. Uh, the market is becoming like a government, like the market has become uh, Amazon, right? So little by little, it, it has grown into the machine that feeds us, clothes us, uh, gives us everything. Uh, and basically, you know, this, this slowly doesn't look at, this, these places don't look like uh, companies anymore. They, they are not places of uh, artistic creativity. They're just bureaucracies devoid of life. Couldn't agree more send a big thank you to our uh, supporters and our listeners thank you guys for joining us for another episode and uh, we hope to hope to keep uh, keep putting these out as, as often as we possibly can so thanks and have a great day